Hey, welcome to the Night Church Podcast, where we meet every Friday evening for worship at the Loma Linda University Church for young adults by young adults. We hope this encourages you and someone else you know. Enjoy. Um, when I was thinking about what to say here, Philip actually said to me, Ron, you have to make sure that you connect what you're going to say with a Bible verse of some kind. So I was looking at my, my Bible and thinking about what was most applicable, and what leapt out to me was Hebrews chapter 11. Maybe you're familiar with this passage. This is where the author, believed to be the Apostle Paul, remembers some of the greatest heroes of the Jewish faith. Men and women who, he says, lived by the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. By faith, he tells us, Noah prepared an ark for the salvation of his household. By faith, Abraham lived as an alien in the land of promise. By faith, Sarah received the ability to conceive. By faith, Moses... Joseph foresaw that he was dying. As he was dying, he foresaw the exodus of Israel Israel from slavery in Egypt. By faith, Moses endured ill treatment with the people of God. By faith, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, and escaped from the edge of the sword. From weakness, they were made strong. They became mighty in war and put foreign armies to flight. Powerful texts, right? Powerful stories it it calls us to remember. But as I thought about this, I thought, you know, I don't think that the message here is that we should only dwell on these stories from the past. I think that we should continue to add to this this legacy to this kind of chronicle of stories of faith. In other words, let's not just think about heroes of faith in the Bible, but also let's think about heroes of faith who have lived more recently and closely to us. So what I'm going to do this evening is just share with you the story of one of these individuals who some of you have maybe heard of, many of you will have not heard his story, but for me, he has become really a hero of faith a person who I've been studying and researching for, uh, for the last three years as I've been working on a book project. This man is John Henry Widener. Just out of curiosity, how many of you immediately know the story of John Henry Widener? Show of hands. I, I can barely see you through these lights, but I think I see one or two. <laughs> so this is going to be new info for you. Well, One of Widener's right-hand lieutenants was a man by the name of Edmund Solomon Shait, and he said the following, according to Jewish legend, the world is preserved because of 36 just men. If you have met John Widener and believe in legends, you have met one. Who was this guy? Here is a photo of John Widener's family. Widener was born in 1912, to a Dutch family. His father was a Seventh-day Adventist minister, and his family lived in the country of Belgium 
during World War I. They experienced terrible poverty, terrible suffering during World War I, during the German occupation of Belgium. After the war ended, he, along with his two sisters and his brother, moved with the family to, first of all, Switzerland for a little bit of time, and then they moved to France to the Adventist University in the village of Cologne. I imagine some of you have, have been to Cologne, or maybe you're familiar with that, that area because there's, there's an Adventist seminary to this day. Widener grew up basically right here uh, at the foot of this mountain known as the Selev. His father was teaching Greek and Latin at the Adventist seminary there and strictly forbade Widener from climbing on these mountains because they were quite dangerous. Widener was a headstrong and somewhat rebellious uh, youth. He would disobey his father and regularly go climbing on the mountain, the Selev, and in doing so developed skills that later on proved very useful and helpful to him in his rescue work. I hear a climber out there, it sounds like. <laughs> John Widener, uh, his two sisters, his parents, his, his brother, um, were living in France. They were Dutch citizens, but really French was their first language. They were most at home in France. And then in 1940, something terrible happened. The Germans basically invaded, invaded Western Europe. And shortly before the invasion, his, his parents, along with his youngest sister, Annette, had moved back to their homeland of the Netherlands. But Widener and his, the older sister, Gabrielle, had stayed behind in France, and they were living in Paris. His brother, Philip, sorry, Philip, had passed away, sadly, uh, a little while before from, uh, from a lung disease but Widener had his two sisters and his parents. And Gabrielle was working as a secretary in the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Paris. Widener had no desire to be poor like his father, and so he had thought about ministry but decided, no, he was going to be an entrepreneur, a businessman. So he had got, opened up a little textile shop. He was selling clothing items and things like that when the Germans basically invaded. People in France thought that uh, their country would, uh, would surely withstand any German attack. They had built this incredible line, this fortification known as the Maginot Line on the border with Germany. But Germany basically just did an end run around the line. They, they went through the lowlands, Holland and, and uh, Belgium, and in an operation you know, that lasted only a matter of a few weeks, they basically defeated the French army and... Hitler, shortly after, basically marched in, and, uh, and there are these photos of Hitler standing in front of the Eiffel Tower and, uh, and in front of other French monuments. Hitler, by the way, was a great, a great aficionado, a fan of architecture, and he wanted to see all the great architecture of Paris. When the Germans were approaching, getting near to Paris, there was a mass exodus. It was, at the time, maybe... The lar about the largest mass exodus of people in, in European history. Virtually 80, 90% of the city of Paris simply fled. The roads were clogged with people. 
you know, trying to get out before the Germans arrived. They were traveling by any means they could find, bicycles, cars, horse carts, on foot. The Germans were uh, strafing the, uh, the exodus of people with, with fighter planes, and so there was chaos, there was carnage and death on the highway. And Widener and his sister Gabrielle, they basically, along with a few others, loaded into a vehicle and fled with this exodus, this great exodus out of Paris. They wound up in southern France. Now, initially, when the Germans invaded, they occupied all of France. But then, short, very shortly afterwards, they partitioned the country. They divided it into two zones, an occupied zone and an unoccupied zone, the north and the south, roughly. And you can see the line on the map. The southern half of France was governed by the Vichy government. These were French collaborators with the Nazis. And essentially, they were like a kind of puppet regime under the Germans' control. But it was maybe a little bit better in France for people. And so Widener and his sister decided to simply uh, you know, flee to the, to the south. Widener had lost everything in the invasion. All his textile shop merchandise was gone. So he decided to reestablish himself in the city of Lyon in southern France. Gabrielle eventually went back to Paris and resumed her work at the Paris Seventh-day Adventist Church. The city of Lyon during the war was known as a hotbed of resistance. It had a long history of being kind of having a kind of uh, streak of rebelliousness, you know, in the city. And Widener basically is working here out of a little shop that he set up just around the corner from where this particular photo was actually taken, and he's trying to reestablish himself. But by 1941, Widener is becoming increasingly involved with humanitarian relief efforts. You see, one of the things that happened when the Germans invaded, and even before they invaded, was there was a refugee crisis. Tens of thousands of people were fleeing from parts of Eastern Europe, from Germany, and then from the Netherlands, making their way to France, which they viewed as being a land of freedom and liberty. The problem was the French people did not particularly, or many French people, did not particularly like foreigners coming into France who didn't speak French and were viewed as being, you know, outsiders. And so the French government, the Vichy government, began to um, confine these refugees in internment camps, which were really close to concentration camps. They set up uh, spots like this particular camp, Gers, and tens of thousands of people were being held here. Huge numbers of them were Jewish. Widener himself estimated that probably somewhere in the range of 90% of the people he was encountering in these camps were Jewish. Widener began to see, what can I do to help people who are confined in these camps, where people were literally dying of starvation and of cold? He got certified as a social worker, and he began to collaborate or work with the Dutch consular offices in the country of France. These were, you know, centers in the different cities to try to help represent Dutch interests. And Widener thought, well, I can maybe at least help Dutch people in these camps, especially because I speak Dutch and I can, you know, play a, a role here. So he got this status as a social worker. He begins to go in and out of these camps, delivering essentially humanitarian relief to people. Clothing, 
food items. And Widener is the kind of person who later on after the war, the stories begin to emerge of how Widener conducted himself. People said, when Widener would enter these camps, if he saw somebody who didn't have shoes on their feet, he would literally take the shoes off his own feet and give them to the person. If he saw somebody without socks, he would take off his socks, you know? This is the kind of human being Widener was, deeply altruistic. But by 1942, the problem is this kind of situation is becoming more and more perilous for the people in these camps. Jewish people now are being actually deported from the camps, put on trains, or actually, you know, sometimes buses, they would be rounded up, and then they would be sent east to Germany to places like Auschwitz. As the situation is becoming more and more dangerous, Widener decides that he has to now do something beyond simply humanitarian relief work. And so what does he do? He basically crosses a line and he starts to do very illegal rescue work. He starts identifying cases inside these camps, people who he can maybe help escape, and he helps them get out of the camps and he sneaks them through various passage passages to Switzerland where they will be safe. And this is where Widener's knowledge of the Solev Mountain comes in useful. The whole zone around the border region with Switzerland is very heavily patrolled. No one is allowed to enter that zone unless they have multiple false identity papers, all kinds of things you need to even get near there. You need to have a card that says that you have a residence in that zone. You need to have a travel document. You need to have a paper that says you know, that you have been released from work obligations and on and on like this. By some counts, maybe six or seven separate documents that you would need to just enter that space. Widener himself opens up a second textile shop in that zone so that he can get the papers that say, well, I'm just traveling here on business, you know, selling my, selling my shirts and dresses. So Widener has papers, but the people who he's helping, they don't have papers. So Widener starts to have to you know, figure out ways to get illegal documents for people or false documents. But he also needs to avoid a lot of the roads that people um, travel on because they're heavily patrolled. There's checkpoints, you know. The Germans are guarding these, these, uh, these main passages into that area. And Widener begins to bring people to the Celev Mountain through the woods and over the top of the mountain. This is what it looks like on the top of the Celev Mountain. This is a photo I took um, about a year and a half ago when I was visiting here. He would bring them across this plateau and then over the edge of the Celev Mountain and down the steep trails. Now, Widener, I don't think he ever took people down cliffs quite like this, but this gives you a feel for the, the terrain, you know? One woman who he helped to rescue, a Dutch opera singer by the name of Ray Koster, she and her husband were the first people, actually, who Widener rescued by bringing them over the Celeb Mountain route. She described their journey. It took them 11 hours to get down the mountain in the pitch black of night. And then when they reached the bottom of the mountain, they hid in a little rabbit hutch surrounded by rabbits for several days. The woman would bring, who owned the farm would bring them food in the rabbit hutch. And then when there was an opening, somebody else would take them and escort them 
down the short distance to the Swiss border and they would crawl or climb under the barbed wire and make their way into Switzerland. Widener could not do this kind of rescue work alone. He had many people help him. Um, what you see here in the photo, you see uh, the woman on the far side is his secretary, his personal secretary, Raymond Pilot, who began helping Widener when she was just 17 years old. Uh, she was a member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Lyon, and she met Widener in the church, and she, she had lost brothers in, world, in the previous war, in World War I, and she basically said, what can I do to help? He told her, he explained to her the risks, and she said, I'm all in. In the end, Raymond Pillow would actually be captured by the Germans. Uh, she was personally arrested by Klaus Barbie, the head of the Gestapo in Lyon, the infamous butcher of Lyon, as he came to be known. She was tortured, but she survived the war. The next woman who you see in this line is uh, Widener's wife, a woman by the name of Elizabeth Cartier, and she played a very critical role in this operation. Elizabeth Cartier worked in the French consul office in Switzerland, and the thing was the Swiss were also hostile to foreign refugees. They didn't want foreigners coming across their lines, particularly Jewish foreigners. And so oftentimes when people would actually successfully reach Switzerland, no sooner would they get there than the Swiss authorities would simply hand them back over the line to the Germans or to the Vichy authorities, and they would wind up being sent to Auschwitz anyways. So how do you help people not only reach Switzerland, but then stay in Switzerland once you get there? And Elizabeth Cartier, through her contacts in the French consul office and in that kind of world of the government, what she did was she arranged for paperwork to be prepared for the refugees so that they would actually have legal status when they reached Switzerland. And so they would line up the names of the people who Widener was planning to bring, and she would prepare the paperwork so that as soon as they got there, they would be able to stay in the country without fear of deportation. The next person who you see in the line is uh, a man by the name of Edmund Chait, the one who we heard his quote earlier. He was a Jewish refugee from Rotterdam, and he was, uh, was in Lyon, and Widener basically gave him the opportunity to escape to Switzerland, but he said, no, I want to work with you. And he ended up staying in France and working alongside Widener really as his, uh, one of his right-hand men. Widener said he had two right-hand men. doesn't quite make sense, but, um, uh, but Edmund Chait was one of them, and he did incredibly heroic work at great risk. You can imagine a Jewish person doing this kind of rescue work. The next person in the line is Jacques Rennes, who was uh, his second right-hand man and who helped Widener in the final year of the war. In the end, there were actually about 300 people who were involved in his rescue operation in one way or another, and about 30 of them who were just dedicated full-time rescuers in Widener's work. Now, you might ask yourself, how on earth could you pull this off even like financially? It was incredibly expensive and costly to fund rescue work. You had to pay people for false papers and false documents. You had to purchase food and clothing for people, which was hard under conditions of rationing. You had to oftentimes pay off guides to take people across borders because Widener would do this kind of work completely for free, but many people would only do it for pay, would only do it for money. 
And so it was quite an expensive thing. Widener was initially getting funding from the Dutch consul offices. He was emptying his own pockets, spending every last dime that he had. He was borrowing money from friends to then pay for rescue work and help people. But he's going completely bankrupt. He's going completely broke. And at a certain point, Widener realizes he needs financing for this whole operation. And so he, he makes his way to Switzerland, and he makes contact with the man you see on the screen here. He was a prominent person in Dutch society. Wilhelm Wissertehoft, who later becomes the head of the World Council of Churches. And he asks Wissertehoft for help. He says, can you help raise some money for this operation? And Wissertehoft ends up saying, yes, I will you know, reach out to people and raise money, but I also need you to help me with something. Wissertehoft had schemed up an idea for sneaking intelligence in and out of the occupied zones, in and out of the Netherlands. The problem was he didn't really have reliable people on the ground in France who could navigate and get around. And he saw in Widener somebody who had that skill set. And so from their very first meeting, this kind of partnership is formed. And Widener ends up becoming the chief courier of intelligence for the Allied forces in this operation known as the Swiss Road. Basically, Widener and only his most inner circle of people, probably somewhere around eight or nine or 10 people, even knew about this within France. And what they would do is they would move in and out of the, uh, these zones, microfilmed intelligence that would be concealed inside pens or inside toothbrush handles, and Jacques Wren says that for the most sensitive microfilm, they would put it in little silver capsules and they would insert it into their rectums for when they would be strip-searched as they were moving things around. This is, this is gritty work. This is <laughs> uncomfortable work. This is highly dangerous work. And by 1943, September of 1943, Widener's actions are catching up to him. He gets tipped off that the Gestapo has staked out his house in Lyon and is about to arrest him. And at this moment, he goes into hiding permanently for the rest of the war. He tries to create a disguise for himself, which I don't think is entirely convincing. He grows a mustache and puts on these glasses, which he has no need of. <laughs> That's his, that is his disguise, and what you see on the screen is one of his false identity papers with one of his aliases. He had many. By mid to late 1943, Widener's operation also begins to uh, expand to include helping downed Allied aviators. As the aerial war is intensifying in, over, in the skies over Europe, uh, hundreds of Allied pilots, aviators, are being shot out of the skies. Almost all of them are instantaneously captured by the Germans when their parachutes land. But a few of them, a very small number, manage to evade capture and find their way to perhaps a farmhouse or some, some location where some person will help hide them, maybe in a barn or something, and then that person will reach out to the underground, to the resistance, and say, I have an aviator. And the resistance will come 
and get these individuals connected with an escape line of some kind, essentially an underground railroad. And Widener's network begins to pick up these allied aviators and help them escape. There's two ways to escape, basically, from occupied Europe. So the first way was the, the initial way that Widener had developed, which was you, you know, people would make their way to Paris and then find their way to Toulouse and then across to Annecy, and then he would help them reach Cologne, his old childhood stomping grounds, and then slip them across the border into Switzerland. But the problem is, if you make your way to Switzerland uh, during the war, you're pretty much stuck there for the rest of the war. You know, it's a landlocked nation, and there's no way to really get out. And these Allied aviators wanted to try to make their way back to England so they could rejoin the war effort. In addition, there were young men, mostly men, from the Netherlands who wanted to also join the Allied forces. They, came, they became known as Englandvarders. Basically, um, their intent was to reach England by many of them sailing across the English Channel in these little tiny boats you know, that they would try to canoes, essentially. And most of them died trying to make that passage by sea. It was so dangerous. But the more safe route was to make your way basically to southern France and then try to cross the Pyrenees Mountains that separate France and Spain. I'm so glad that you've been listening to the first part of the sermon. This sort of production does require some financial cost. If you'd like to reach more young adults with this across the world, would you consider giving at praxisministry.org? You can select the Praxis Young Adult Envelope. Enjoy the rest of the sermon. Widener and his network, which came to be known as the Dutch Paris Escape Line, began helping people across the Pyrenees Mountains. Widener did not himself lead those, those trips because the Pyrenees weren't his familiar territory, but he enlisted people, guides and coordinators of, you know, of this operation. One of the people who helped out a great deal was a Catholic priest by the name of Father Jean Andesteke, who worked or lived, I should say, in this monastery in Toulouse. That's a photo I took of the monastery again when I was there about a year and a half ago. Widener had heard about this Catholic priest and he had heard about how he was helping people and in the, you know, in the resistance. And so Widener one day basically just showed up at the monastery and said, I want to see the priest. I want to see Father Destege. He was told that he was actually sick, which was true. He was sick in his room upstairs. Widener was insistent that he needed to see him. Finally, he relented and said, okay, he can come up and talk to me, you know, sitting beside my bed. Widener came up. He made a little bit of small talk, and then he just uh, came out with his request. Widener had this kind of um, uncanny intu intuition into people. He could see whether a person was trustworthy or not. And you kind of had to have that intuition because decisions had to be made quickly sometimes. You know, can I trust this person or not? And he saw in this Catholic priest somebody he could trust, and so he said, I'm running an escape line, and I would like for you to help me by hiding people here at the monastery. 
The priest didn't have the same intuition of Widener. He said, how can I trust this guy? He just showed up at my bedside, right? So he said, well, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, like, I don't involve myself in these things. And he gave him all these stories. Widener was discouraged. He started to leave the, the priest's room. And then he turned and came back, and he said to the priest, he said, this Tuesday, at this time, listen to the BBC radio, and you will hear the words, the flower vase is on the table. <laughs> what was this about? This was a method that people in the resistance used to certify their reliability, because the assumption was, if you're the kind of person who can get the BBC radio to broadcast something, you must be re reliable and trustworthy. The priest said, I don't even have a radio. That was not true. He had a radio, of course. He denied it and he kind of dismissed him. But when that day came, he tuned in his radio and he was stunned to hear the words, the flower vase is on the table. And the next day, Edmund Chait, Widener's right-hand man showed up again at his door and said, are you ready to start working for us now? And he agreed. And so he began to help people escape through this monastery. Widener was this kind of person. He would, he would reach out to anyone who he saw as being someone he could trust. It didn't matter what your faith was or whether you were a person of any belief or no belief at all. Widener also had great respect for the Jewish tradition, the Jewish faith, uh, you know, at a certain point, he actually was talking with Edmund Chait about whether or not it was permissible to do this kind of rescue work on the Sabbath. <laughs> they got into a theological discussion. Widener consulted with his Seventh-day Adventist pastor and said, is it okay to do rescue work on the Sabbath? And the pastor said, yes, it is okay. And Widener wasn't fully convinced that this was a good answer. So he asked Edmund Chait, can you please reach out to this particular Jewish rabbi? and consult the rabbi and find out, is it okay to do this on the Sabbath? And of course, the predictable answer was, yes, by all means, you can save lives on the Sabbath, right? And so Widener continued his rescue work, I suppose, with a clear conscience. What was it like crossing the Pyrenees Mountains? It was incredibly difficult. You would have to spend sometimes three or four days crossing, especially when it was uh, deep snow in the wintertime. This is a painting by somebody who was rescued uh, by Widener in his network, a man by the name of Rudy Zeman. And Rudy Zeman painted himself into his, his own painting. He's the man in the white coat at the back of the line that you see there. And I had the opportunity to um, at least virtually meet Rudy Zeman over the, over the phone before he passed away at the age of 101 just a little while ago. Um, this is an extremely rare photograph, actually, of one of these convoys of people escaping across the Pyrenees Mountains in the snow from Widener's escape operation. And it was for this rescue work, helping downed Allied aviators, that Widener, in the end, was awarded the United States Medal of Freedom. This is uh, just a, a part of his citation from this medal. For exceptionally meritorious achievement, Captain Widener displayed great courage and magnificent fortitude in organizing and directing the vast escape route Dutch Paris. Five times arrested, 
Each time he succeeded in escaping by quick thinking or unshakable intrepidity in the face of interrogation under torture. What were these five times that Widener was arrested that this citation alludes to? He was arrested first by Vichy gendarmes in 1942, early on in his work. He was beaten savagely for two days to the point where he had terrible injuries to his head that he had operations for after the war ended. He was arrested again by the Gestapo in Lyon in 1943. And when he was arrested this time, he was water tortured. They suspected him of being a human smuggler. And in the end, after interrogating him for a few hours, they threw him out again on the street. He was arrested again another time at the Swiss border um, by the Swiss who suspected him of being a Jewish refugee. And we have a copy of the letter, the note that he wrote to his wife from inside this Swiss camp, basically saying to her, please contact people to help me escape, you know, to get out of this Swiss camp where he had, was being held by the Swiss. He was arrested another time by a French policeman as he and another man, Henry Gazan, who was actually on his very first mission for Dutch Paris, and within about 10 minutes of him crossing the border, they're both arrested, okay? And at this, at this arrest, Widener and, uh, and Henry Gazan are being, are being escorted and led to a police station, and Widener has this feeling, if I'm taken there, I might be handed over to the Germans, who knows? And so he says to his comrade Henry, Henry, run, and Widener, Henry freezes and doesn't run. Widener makes a mad dash for the border and hurls himself over the barrier, gets caught in the barbed wire at the top of the barrier, but manages to tumble to the other side, terribly cut up and torn from, uh, from going through the barbed wire. And the French police is on the French side and can do nothing. And then there was the final time that he was actually captured, which I'll say something about in a minute. In early 1944, catastrophe strikes. There was a woman in Widener's network, a woman by the name of Susie Cry, who was captured by the Germans and under torture or threat of torture, basically gave away names and addresses in the network. The Gestapo begins a series of kind of rolling arrests, rounding up people, striking here, striking in this city, in this city. And by the end of this, uh, around 100 people have been captured by the Gestapo, including Widener's sister, Gabrielle. They arrested Gabby on actually a Sabbath morning in the Seventh-day Adventist church in Paris. The Gestapo, two Gestapo agents came to the rear of the church and they asked for Gabby by name. The greeter at the door of the church immediately realized that this was trouble. She knew these guys were, were, were Gestapo and she said, Gabby's not here today, unfortunately. But another church member overhears and 
trying to be helpful, says, oh, no, no, she's inside in Sabbath school. Let me go get her. (laughs) Someone went to get Gabby. They whispered in her ear that there were people there to see her. Now, the thing is, Gabby was expecting the day before two people who Widener had told her were coming And she was supposed to meet them and give them some especially important microfilm that she was holding. So she leans to her sister, Annette, who by this time had actually made her way to Paris. She leans to her sister, Annette, in the Sabbath school and said, it's probably those two people who are coming. Stay here. Come and find me in 10 minutes. And she slipped out. Annette waited 10 minutes. She had slipped out of the Sabbath school. And she went upstairs because Gabby had a little apartment in an upper story space above the church. And Annette came and opens the door to the room, and her sister Gabby was standing inside her apartment with these two Gestapo agents and with a a terrible look on her face. And Gabby, in this moment, she was quick thinking. She said to her sister Annette, she began to scold her as if she was a cleaning maid. And she said, I told you never to knock on, never to enter here without my permission, and slammed the door in her face. And Annette immediately knew this was was trouble. She fled down the stairs. She went across the street and hid beneath a stairway of another building. And she waited for about half an hour and then watched as these Gestapo agents escorted her sister Gabby away and out from the building. Annette was obviously distraught. She began to hunt for her brother, and she had no idea where to find her brother. He was so secretive about his whereabouts and where his locations were that even his own sisters didn't know where to find him. But eventually she found somebody else in the network who took her to her brother, and she told her brother what had happened. Widener was distraught. He began frantically making phone calls, but there was nothing to be done. He then told his sister, by the way, this is his sister Gabby, and this is his sister Annette. He told Annette, here's the thing. You need to go back to Gabby's room and find somewhere in the apartment two things, travel documents that you are going to need to get out of the country safely, and the microfilm, which is very important. But neither of them had any idea where these were concealed or hidden. Annette went back to the apartment, actually the next day, so it's Sunday now. There's no worshipers in the building. She goes into the room. She finds a photo of herself, actually, in the room that was overturned face down, and she believes her sister had overturned that that photo to prevent her from being recognized. Gabby is gone, but Annette is now standing in this room not knowing where to find these items. And it's a very dangerous situation because actually the Gestapo could come back at any moment or they might be surveilling the building. And at this point, Annette says she she prays to God for guidance, okay? And she says in her statement about this, and it's true, if you read her letters and you kind of get to know Annette's personality, she's not exactly the most pious personality. She's mischievous. She's uh, even devious, you might say. She's 
always thinking about boys. She has like a new boyfriend every week. She's, <laughs> she's, she's just kind of the life of the party. She's, you know, she's not the kind of person who sort of sees miracles everywhere she looks, but she prays. And she says, it was as if God just took my hand and led me to a bookshelf, and I took a book off the shelf and opened it, and the travel documents were in that book. And she prays again, where's the microphone, God? And she says, I was just like almost forcibly led to a gramophone in the corner of the room. I opened up the gramophone, and I took it out. There was a piece of cloth wrapped inside the gramophone, and I unwrapped it, and there was a pen, and inside the pen was the microphone. She takes these back to her brother. But there are tough questions to be asked here because what in the end happens to Gabby? Gabby was held in a prison in Paris until basically just a few days before the liberation of the city. And she was put on a train. It was a famous train, the last convoy, filled with prisoners. And she was sent east to Germany to Ravensbrück concentration camp, a concentration camp for women. She had a terrible ordeal in the camp. In the end, she survived the liberation of the camp by Russian forces. But within days, she died. She was so starved and sick from her treatment and the abuse she suffered in that camp. We started off, you know, talking about all of these heroes of faith, but we also can't forget how the book of Hebrews continues, right? If you're familiar with the passage there, Hebrews 11. Yes, by faith, many people did all these incredible things, but also by faith, Paul writes, others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings, scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts, mountains, and caves and holes in the ground. John Widener made plans to escape himself to England in the very final days of the war. He went to Toulouse, and he was, the night before, meeting with a few of his friends in a restaurant in Toulouse with the plan to cross the Pyrenees Mountains the next day. One of his compatriots, a guy by the name of Gabriel Nehas, he was the guide for the Pyrenees routes, he had observed that Widener was planning to take with him on his trip across the mountains a, a Bible. And he said, this is ridiculous. Do you know how much a Bible weighs? You can't, you can't walk across the Pyrenees with extra weight. So he, he came to the restaurant, and he handed Widener a little tiny miniature copy of the New Testament. He said, this is, take this one instead, you know, like a small size Bible. It's smarter. There was somebody else sitting in the restaurant. He was... Uh, he was a man who was a member of the Milice. This was essentially a group known as the French Gestapo, collaborators with the Nazis, infamous for their use of torture. And he witnessed this transfer of the book, and he thought there was something suspicious in it. He left the restaurant. He got some of his compatriots or his, his comrades. They came back, and as Widener and Paul Vermin and Jacques Rennes 
were exiting the restaurant. The Millies surrounded them and ordered them to put their hands on the wall, searched them down, patted them down, and then marched them to this Millie's headquarters. This is what the Millie's headquarters looks like today, actually. The building with the blue, bluish or aqua-ish door that you see there. Widener was taken here, and, uh, and he was very nearly tortured. It seems that they actually stripped him naked and were about to um, torture him with electric torture. But Widener somehow managed to persuade them and convince them that they could always torture him later. <laughs> But first, they should allow him to speak to their commander, a man by the name of Pierre Marty. For whatever reason, they said, okay, very well, we'll take you to Marty. He went to Marty, and he was incredibly candid and forthright with him. He said, I am a rescuer. I help people escape. But I don't involve myself in French affairs, French politics. Marty sized him up and said, I like your attitude. I won't hand you over to the Germans, but we'll keep you here for a while and see if your story is right. So he ended up staying in this, this prison here for nine days, and during that time uh, befriended one of his guards, a guy by the name of Brunner, to the point where Brunner was bringing vegetarian meals to him. Wow. <laughs> and Widener, in this in his conversations with Brunner, began to say to him, you're going to lose the war. You need to be on the right side of history. You should help us escape. <laughs> Brunner said he couldn't do that. But on this ninth night of Widener's stay here in this prison in Toulouse, along with Jacques Rennes, the two of them were together at this stage, um, Brunner warned them that the next day they were going to be handed over to the Germans. Widener said, you have to then help us. We're going to escape tonight. Brunner said, I can't really help you, but I'll, I can maybe move you to another cell that's maybe a little closer to the ground level. <laughs> they wound up in a cell on the second floor of the building. And that night, they picked the lock, they opened the door, they took off their shoes and held them in their hands so they wouldn't make noise, and they made their way down a hallway past sleeping guards who were sleeping on top of their machine guns. They entered an office space, and they hid in that office until precisely 6 a.m. when the curfew ended, because if you were seen on the street during curfew, you would immediately be arrested. And the moment curfew ended at 6 a.m., they opened the window, and they leapt from the second floor of the window, a distance I, from my visit to Toulouse, I estimate was maybe somewhere between 12 and 15 feet onto cobblestone, and miraculously, Jacques Wren and Widener were unhurt. The war ended in 1945, and Widener's story actually continues in a pretty dramatic fashion. He ends up becoming the head of the Dutch Secret Service for all French territory with a mission of hunting for Nazi collaborators. And for almost two years, Widener basically serves in this role, and his office winds up opening cases, investigating around 7,000 people, and they arrest about 1,300 people. By some kind of twist of karmic symmetry, 
Almost the exact same number of people who his network rescued, he also arrests his collaborators. During this time, he begins to receive recognitions for his heroism. Here is a certification or a, um, a document presented to him by Dwight Eisenhower, who he met personally, expressing gratitude on behalf of President Truman. And he receives a slew of other awards. The French Legion of Honor, the Medal of Freedom that we already saw, um, the, uh, the Dutch, what does it say? I can't even see. Orangeness, <laughs> there we go. Yeah, Order of the British Empire, the Dutch, you know, Orange Nassau, this, basically all of these awards and a bunch of others that aren't even on the screen. Weidner probably was, actually, was probably the most decorated Dutchman of the entire war. And in 1955, he ended up immigrating to the United States. Why did he immigrate? There's some hints. After the war ended, um, while he was working in the Dutch Secret Service, he ends up getting pushed out of the Dutch Secret Service by um, an individual by the name of Louis Eindhoven. Who was this guy Eindhoven? He's kind of the father of the modern Dutch Secret Service. Well, it turns out Eindhoven was himself a Nazi collaborator. So you can imagine that he and Widener are not going to get along that well, and he basically forces Widener out of his role. Widener winds up completely broke. His marriage falls apart. His wife divorces him. He's physically and mentally scarred by his experiences. And one of the experiences he had to illustrate the trauma of this period that he lived through, one of the experiences that was especially traumatic was when he was on a platform at a train station in Lyon and he witnessed a German soldier with a group of Jewish refugees take from a woman a baby who she was holding in her, in her arms, throw the baby on the ground and stomp on the baby's head with his boot. And Widener found himself so traumatized by the things he had witnessed and experienced that he could not go to certain places without having the memories come back. And eventually his friends and even a psychologist tells him, you should leave Europe. And so in 1955, Widener ended up immigrating to the United States. He came to Pasadena. He remarried. Initially, when he first got to the United States, he... Um, he was selling his own brand of muesli out of the back of a borrowed station wagon. <laughs> and eventually he made enough money to open a store. He opened health food stores in the, in the Pasadena area, started selling health food products. And then he kind of faded into obscurity. And it wasn't until the late 1960s and 1970s uh, that his story kind of was discovered. And in 1978, he was invited to come to Israel to Yad Vashem and be honored as a righteous among the nations and have a tree planted in his honor. He passed away in 1994. This is a photograph uh, taken of him just a few years before he passed away. I'm going to end with a quotation, actually, from Widener's funeral that I think is a challenge to us, hopefully an inspiration to us. Rabbi... Harold Schulweis, a very distinguished rabbi whose name is well-known in the Jewish community, gave um, a, a eulogy at his funeral, and he said the following. 
John Widener presents us with a hard mirror. Would I rescue a pregnant woman, a hungry or homeless child, an aged, frightened couple, provide them with food and shelter, dispose of their refuse, and care for them in their sickness, knowing that doing so might bring disaster upon my family from Nazi pursuers and their informers. The rescuer's goodness shakes the foundations of my claims to moral virtue. I welcome your questions and Philip's questions if we have time. Do we have time, Philip? We've got two questions to ask you, brother. Okay. We had, uh, we definitely had some questions come in, but for time's sake, I want to ask you two questions, brother. You know, a lot of times as believers, we're, we're left with these stories and we ask, wow, this was incredible. What do I do with my life today, here and now, in the light of a story like this? You know, a lot of times we can be so pious that we simply miss the opportunity to be earthly good. What do we do with a story like this in the light of then our personal lives? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, most of us are not going to be, uh, <laughs> you know, jumping out of, out of buildings to escape the Gestapo, right? Yeah. But I think for me, you know, the deeper I've gone into this Widener story, just the more remarkable I find it and the more remarkable I find him. Mm. And, and it just challenges me constantly to think about, you know, how can I be of service or help mm. in the space where I find myself? Mm. I don't think Widener set out to be a hero, but he had a character mm. of service, mm. you know? Yeah. How did it all start? It started off, like I said, as a, simply a social worker. Mm. How can I bring food and clothing to somebody who needs it? Mm. How can I think about the needs of the outsider, the refugee? Mm the person who's you know, fleeing violence or needs a shelter. Mm. Um, unfortunately, Widener's, the world of Widener is our, our world today. Hmm. What do you mean? I mean that we don't have to look far to find people fleeing violence. We don't have to look far to find people who are refugees, hmm. right? And there's things we can do, big or small. So I think... I would just encourage all of you to think about, you know, how can I get plugged in, you know? How can I put, put my faith into, into practice, actually, in a way that's tangible? Mm, practical, yeah, really challenging in that way. His story is quite harrowing in the fact that he was so quick with his words, quick with his actions, and uh, as the band kind of comes up here, we'll just step with this one question. What was it that practically motivated John Widener from your readings of his letters and work, from his faith, from his Adventist yeah. convictions? Yeah. What was it that kind of compelled him to go back again and again? I mean, he probably should have left after the first beating, the first imprisonment, but he kept going yeah. back. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there were so many moments in the story where Widener could have stopped working and still been a hero at the end yeah. of the story. Yeah. You know? Yeah. He'd saved hundreds of people. Yeah. And now he needs to go into hiding. Yeah. Okay, bow out. I'm done. Right? Right. He's been tortured. Mm -hmm. Good time to stop. Yeah. Right? But he just kept going. He was kind of relentless in this way. Um, what did Widener himself say about what motivated him? He 
you know, he's a man of action, not so much a man of words in a lot of ways. But uh, if, you, if you listen to what he says, you said, what did his Adventism have to do with it? I honestly don't quite know, you know? Was it that he could relate to the plight of these people because Adventists also knew, knew what it was like to be kind of a marginalized religious mm. community? Was it his personal experience of growing up in poverty that gave him a heart for people who were in that place, you know? But Weiner himself said very clearly, he said, you don't even have to be a religious believer at all to actually do what needs to be done. Mm. What you need is love. Mm. Sounds like a platitude, but, sure. but that's what he said. He said, you know, people need to love each other. Mm. And, uh, and that kind of transcends... Uh, many of our differences, whether those are religious differences or political differences, you know, yeah. to simply love people. And I think that was kind of the beating heart of what he did. Mm, that's beautiful. Yeah. Ron, thank you so much for the time you took to explain his story. I think each one of us are inspired by, by what you've done, but also particularly his story, which compels each one of us to practically ask God, what can I do with my life? I'm reminded of the verse in the book of James you know, what is good and right, pure religion is to help the least of these, the orphan, the widow, the one that is in greatest need. Friends, don't ever forget in your pursuit of so much in this life that you do not forget to be like John Widener, who finds himself, you could say, in a modern Hebrews 11, 12 story. May you and I be of such that we would be good people in trying times to bless others in small and big ways. Thank you so much this evening. Thank you so much for listening to the Night Church Podcast. We hope you've been blessed by this sermon. And if you have, maybe you can share this with a friend. If you'd like to stay in touch, you can follow us on social media at Praxis Ministry or come visit us in Loma Linda on a Friday evening. We'll see you in the next episode.